KPFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3.30. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover with Jocelyn Richards. Welcome to Cover to Cover, Javelin's Bistro. <laughs> so welcome to today's show. I'm glad to be here with you. It is Wednesday, 3.30, the hump of the week. And uh, today we are going to have a wonderful conversation with the writer whose memoir, The Broken Places, uh, Joseph McBride. Joseph McBride was born in Milwaukee and educated at Marquette University High School and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He lives in Berkeley, California, and is a professor in the cinema department at San Francisco State University. McBride is the author of 17 previous books, including biographies of Frank Capra, John Ford, and Steven Spielberg, three books on Orson Welles, and Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. Now, as always, when I'm on the air, I always invite you, my listeners, to be my co-host and to call in. And that number would be 510-848-4425. If you hear something that uh, interests you and you'd like to ask uh, Joseph McBride a, a question, don't hesitate. Don't be afraid. Call in and join in this next uh, 28 minutes of conversation. So I want to welcome Joseph McBride to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Javelin. It's wonder- wonderful to be here. And absolutely. So this is your memoir, and this is a story of you growing up uh, in the Midwest. The Broken Places dives deeply into some highly traumatic events in your life, including your psychological and physical breakdown in high school. Was it painful for you or embarrassing for you to actually write this memoir? Well, it was painful. Um, I, I got over the embarrassment a long time ago. I think Tennessee Williams is a writer I love, a uh, very gutsy writer. He said a writer should never be embarrassed. So I took that to heart, and that helped me over some of the tough parts. But it's hard sharing the, the most painful parts of your life, and this was a, a difficult time, obviously. And, and also there's a stigma surrounding mental illness in our country it was worse back then and it still lingers to some extent you know back then people would say somebody's crazy or nuts and they would malign people unthinkingly and we're a little more enlightened now but there's still a kind of anxiety people have about well what if i tell this story will people shun me or will my friends and employers get upset or whatever and uh, i had to kind of confront that but the, the reason i did this was i just had to tell this story this was the basic story of my life that really changed me in every way. I was saved, actually, ironically, by this terrible experience of being put in a mental hospital and having a breakdown was really the best thing that ever happened to me, ironically. It got me out of the house. We had a very dysfunctional family. got me out of school, got me out of the Catholic Church, which was very oppressive to me at the time. I was having a lot of sexual struggles and repression. And it saved my life because I didn't have to go to Vietnam, I think. Uh, I would have probably gone there otherwise. And uh, I, f- I met a girl. That was the main thing that was terrific about this experience. I was not able to meet girls in Catholic schools. They kind of segregated the genders. And so I met this wonderful but very troubled woman, and that's what the story is about. It's a love story about her and, and, and me, how she saved me, but she couldn't save herself. So you were in high school. You have a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. 
tell us what that was. How did you know you were having a nervous breakdown? And for many of us out here that might not have experienced that or have experienced it, maybe not even known about it, had the resources, mm-hmm. how did you know? Well, I really didn't didn't know. That's the funny thing because, you know, Freud said the first step to mental health is realizing you have a problem. So a lot of people don't re- don't realize that. They never realize it. So you're lucky if you can realize it. But sometimes if you're having a severe problem, you're the last person to know because you think, well, it's okay. I was having... I realized later uh, a lot of it was physical because the physical and the brain uh, and the emotions are all linked. We didn't realize that as much at the time, but I I think I was anorexic. I was severely um, undernourished. Actually, I had a cruel nickname when I was in uh, uh, high school. I was a golf caddy, and the kids used to call me UN for undernourished. I was very thin. And uh, But I think I was not eating properly, and I was um, working too hard in school. I was working like four hours a night. Marquette High School is a very demanding Jesuit school. You told me your brother went there, too. My brother, yes, yeah. he did. So, yeah. you know, it's a, a very good school in a lot of ways, but also had some a lot of sexual repression. And there was one priest who was a sadist who used to be the school disciplinarian, used to whip us with a golf club if we got out of line. Um, so I was... Stressed out, I was trying really hard to study, wanting to go to Harvard. And I was, um, after Kennedy was shot, it kind of upended my life because I wanted to go into politics. And um, I worked for him in his campaign in 1960. And that I didn't know how to deal with the fact that he was gone and the system seemed to have broken down. So I was throwing myself into work in a manic way. And um, what happened was um, my parents were concerned, but they sent me to a doctor who's, who was sort of a glib guy, and he said, oh, you're no more neurotic than the average Marquette High School senior, so they thought I was okay. Um, but m- one of my brothers said, well, you weren't sleeping, and I, I thought he meant, you know, I wasn't sleeping very much. He said, no, you literally were not sleeping for about a week before you broke down. And uh, But my parents were very oblivious to all this. They were alcoholics, and alcoholics tend to be wrapped up in their own problems. And um, we had seven kids, which... Uh, you know, it's hard to take care of seven kids and pay attention to all of them. So I spent three years in my room with the door closed writing a book on baseball in high school. That was my form of coping, which actually was a good thing. But um, I didn't socialize. And so I, what happened, the trigger for this was I started to have this plan, a megalomaniacal plan to save the world. I wanted to go to Washington to meet President Johnson and tell him about this plan, which is kind of complicated but it had to do with bringing world peace with the russians somehow i had a way to do that and integrating southern universities and i had some scheme for doing that and you know it sounded like commendable things but however i was doing it was kind of unhinged and i think it was partly because my mother who was a newspaper reporter was in washington covering johnson's inauguration this was january 65 and i think i was kind of reaching out to my mother in a strange way and but I told a friend of mine about this plan, and he realized that I was cracking up. So they called. He called a couple of priests, and they came out to my house and tried to persuade my father I, I needed hospitalization. And he was in denial, and he was arguing about it. And finally, these priests got him to take me to the hospital. And I thought I was. They kind of lied to me. They said, "We'll just put you in there for a rest for a few days, and you'll be okay." Mm-hmm. And I remember I was very hungry and very tired, and. And then I realized after about a week I wasn't getting out, and I felt very angry and betrayed, and then things went on from there. 
So you're listening to Joseph McBride speaking about his memoirs, The Broken Places. This is KPFA. Uh, you're listening to Cover to Cover, Javelin's Bistro. So this, you were compelled to tell the story, and it is a love story. Tell mm-hmm. us about this woman that you met while you were hospitalized. I met this wonderful woman, Kathy Wolf, her name was. She was about my age. We were both about 17. She was part Native American, Menominee Indian, and part Irish. And so she was torn with her ethnic identity in those days. She suffered some mockery and abuse for being part Indian and part partly dark-skinned. And uh, people in those days were not encouraged to be proud of their ethnic roots. We were all supposed to have this melting pot mentality. We were all kind of supposed to lose our ethnic differences. And it wasn't until... I think Alex Haley had a lot to do with it when he came along with Roots, and that causes huge uh, explosion of people thinking, wow, I'm proud of my background, and who are my ancestors? And and Kathy was um, in this terrible time before that was acceptable. Later in her life, she didn't live very long, but she got into activism with the Menominees. They were trying to get their land back from the government. It was a very complicated process, and it's a very poor reservation, but that's where she was born in northern Wisconsin, and um, she also had family problems. Her parents didn't get along. There was alcoholism. Um, she lived with her grandparents, who were nice people, but, you know, she was kind of a rebellious uh, girl, and um, she had what they called schizophrenia then. Back then, the diagnoses were kind of broad, and they didn't really know what was wrong with her, so they gave her tons of pills, heavy doses of Thorazine and shock treatments, which I think is a horrible thing to do. And she told me that really messed up her brain. So she was very confused, and um, she had a couple of other personalities when I knew her. One was this sort of sophisticated woman called Eloise that she would lapse into. And she was very chic and sexy in her own way and would dress up and look very, very um, sophisticated. And then for two weeks, she thought she was Barbara Streisand. So I had to call her Barbara, and she would run around singing people, and that was a very strange time. And this is why you were in the hospital? Uh, This was later in the summer. uh, After I got out, she had gotten out before me, and then we dated that summer of 65, which was a very nice summer. We used to go make out in this park every night, and it was that was kind of my sexual uh, outflowering. You know, I was the first time I'd ever had romance or kissing a girl and you know she was the first girl i ever kissed you, yes and you also you say you struggled at some points um be prior to that with your sexual reality mm-hmm. and, and there's a, a part in the book where you go to a park mm-hmm. you take your clothes off mm-hmm. you see a, um, a girl woman and then you began to masturbate right that was a painful memory that i had to write about uh, i rem- you know because writing a memoir is a process of being brutally frank about recalling things and trying to get them exactly the way they were. And that was an awful moment. You know, I was driven to the point of, you know, I wanted contact with the opposite sex. I didn't know how to do it, and that was the the best I could do at the time. I was also very um, hung up on pornography at the time. It was very mild compared to what we have today, but I would go and look at nudie magazines and things um, at the store every day after school. So here I was, this Catholic kid who was taught that sex is sinful, and we had a book called Modern Youth and Chastity, which told us that even kissing women can be mortally sinful. And and I was a very serious Catholic. I think I threw myself into it to get some order in my life because my family was such a mess. Um, But I had these urges that we all have when we're adolescents, your body is developing. And, you know, how do you deal with your sexual impulses if you're told they're wrong? 
so I was in agony over that religious crisis and physical crisis. Let's talk about the Catholic Church. We hear a lot about the Catholic Church in recent years and a lot of the abuse, sexual abuse among um, um, students, uh, members of the church. There is a part in the book that you write about where one of the priests holds his hand up to mm. a lighter. Yeah. To the flesh, you can smell the flesh burning yeah. and sizzling. Talk to us about some of the the cruelty that you experienced growing yeah, up. Yeah, that, that was a real sick episode. We had what they call a retreat every year where a priest would come in. There was this guy who was very charismatic, and he had a later had a TV talk show about God, and he was busted for having an affair with some married woman, had to leave town. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. But he was a spellbinding orator, but he was giving us this hellfire speech, which I reproduced in the book. And the highlight was where he talked about hell, and I really believed in hell, and I was terrified of hell from an early age and thought I would go to hell uh, and you know, for uh, sexual misdeeds. And he, he whipped out a lighter, cigarette lighter, and stuck his finger in it and roasted his finger for about a minute and... You know, you could hear it crackling, you could smell it, and he said, fellas, uh, you know, I could only do it for one minute. He started shaking his finger. He said, one minute, but can you imagine having your whole body in flames for all eternity? And that, wow, that made a big impression on me. He might have stolen that from Lawrence of Arabia, because it's, it's seemed like that in there where Lawrence does that to himself. But it's, it's sick, and I knew it was sick at the time. Um, but they called it the mortification of the flesh in the Catholic Church, and they used to tell us about martyrs who were cooked alive. St. Lawrence, I remember in grade school, the nuns told us this is a myth anyway, but he was being roasted on a spit by the Romans, and he said, turn me over, fellas, I'm not done on the other side. <laughs> this is what the nuns told us, you know. And, you know, you live with these horrific images, and as a friend of mine said, you know, I spent eight years looking at the founder of our church, naked Chain, you know, uh, nailed to a cross, bleeding, and that, that does something to you after a while. And I had a very crazy nun in third grade. Uh, some of the nuns were nice and some were horrible. Um, third grade was especially difficult. I had kind of a breakdown in third grade. Um, but I didn't tell my parents that this nun was abusing me. She had some kind of insane hatred for me. I tried to understand it in the book. But one thing she did was she gave a ruler to all the girls in the class and told them to hit me over the head when I misbehaved. So the girl next to me was this very mean kind of girl. She used to hit me all day long, and, and girls would walk by my desk and whack me. And, and years later, I went to a reunion of our grade school, and I met this nice girl named Susan Jones, who's, who was a teacher at the school. She was one of the nice girls who didn't beat me. And she came over to me, and she, she looked at me, and she said, Oh, my God, I'm, I'm glad you're okay. And I said, What do you mean? She said, Well, I thought you might have brain damage. And I said, why? And she said, well, you were being hit over the head all the time. And, you know. Quite frankly, it was very hard when I was reading that. And then to think now that here you are, you've written all these books on people that we all know in one way or another, and that you are teaching at the, your professor now. Did you write this book? So first of all, I want to say kudos to you for surviving that and making not just a life for yourself, but a life where you have touched people, you've interviewed, and you've shared with me thousands of people. You've uh, taught film, uh, a scriptwriter, all of this wonderfulness that goes with a good life. And you Thank are you. inside of a wonderful marriage. I assume I just, well, you're married, so I assume that, that you may have been able to have a relationship, you know, relationships with people. Yeah, I'm living with a, a wonderful lady who we've been together for 16 years now, and she's a teacher and a writer and Cornell. 
So, yeah, things had worked out well for me, but it was, uh, you know, it, it was touch and go for a while. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. So the, you you said you was compelled to write this story. Yeah. Now, was that for your own process of healing, or was it as all that and to educate around issues of mental health since there is such stigma around that? Well, I think it was a personal compulsion. Uh, the the Helping the world, I think, frankly, I realized later it could help people, and I've been writing articles about that. And it is nice now that I'm getting reactions from a lot of people writing said that your story touched me because I had similar experiences. It gets people to share experiences, and that's one thing a memoir does. And I found that with my Kennedy book, Into the Nightmare, that a lot of people write me and say how they felt when Kennedy died and all that. And it gets people to share. But I wrote this book because I needed it was a form of psychotherapy. I didn't have a lot of good luck with doctors helping me. I felt that I had to cure myself. And so I, this was a form of extended psychotherapy. It took about six years to write this book off and on, um, six years total in writing it over a period of decades, actually. It started in the 60s. Um, so it was putting together things of your life, trying to understand your life, trying to figure out what, why you're still troubled by these things. I was still really uh, angry and upset about a lot of these experiences. And it was therapeutic in that sense because you understand it better, you get out of your system. And I always tell people, if you have a problem, write a book about it, and it becomes this object. It's a book, and you, it's like getting it out of your head. Um, and the other reason I wrote it was I loved Kathy so much, and I wanted to pay tribute to her. Why don't you take a moment to read about her in your book yeah. so that we can hear, have a sense sure. of this woman who made such a deep impression. You're listening to Joseph McBride. Uh, he wrote a memoir, The Broken Places. This is KPFA, cover to cover, Javelin's Bistro. Great. Yeah, I'll read the part when I met her the first time. Um, I was in the hospital. I, I'd been shifted from the main ward, which is sort of a zoo, to, to a kind of a country ward that they had adjacent to the grounds in Milwaukee where you could wander the grounds, you had a little more freedom, but you were still locked up every night. And I would go to this um, vending machine room every day and get candy bars and Cokes and stuff like that, and I would see these girls coming in. The men and women had separate wards, but they you could meet in certain common areas. So these nice teenage girls would come in, I noticed this attractive young lady. So here's what I wrote about. Um, her skin was olive-colored. She had gaunt cheeks with high cheekbones, and her raven black hair was cut sharply across her face. She had lovely tawny legs and a slender figure with small breasts that showed provocatively through her clothing and moved freely as she walked. She wore a black pleated skirt and a black knit pullover with a small silver cross around her neck hanging on a chain between her breasts. Her large, opaque brown eyes looked like bottomless pools you could dive into and never come back. She appeared to me on a gray winter afternoon, five days after my transfer from the central building, materializing in a sudden flaring of light from a shadowy doorway. Her head was tilted away, but as she lifted her long black eyelashes and glanced up at me while lighting her cigarette with a silver lighter, her thin, sensual lips formed a quizzical smile over the flame. Change pages here. Um, Blank-faced and silent, I passed her on my way to the vending machine room of the basement corridor between the men's and women's dorm buildings in the sprawling main complex. A single square window at ground level high up this cold stone wall led in the winter light that dimly illumined the, the empty room. The window glass was frosted and partly covered by a ridge of hard-packed snow that Monday in mid-February. 
I moved mechanically along a row of vending machines, stuffing the pockets of my floppy gray sweater with candy bars. At the end of the row was the Coke machine. I put a quarter in the slot and stared at the paper cup as it dropped into place behind the plastic window and began to fill. I became aware that I was not alone in the room. The girl had entered silently as a cat and was working the levers of the cigarette machine at the other end under the window. The sun moved from behind a cloud and rays of cold light shot from the cross between her breasts as her body lurched back and forth and the coins clattered in the tray and the pack of Benson and Hedges came down with a thump, her long, delicate fingers scooping it out and the scarlet nail on her index finger slitting the cellophane. I backed into the corner between the pale green wall and a trash can overflowing with candy bar wrappers and sticky paper cups. It was hot on this side of the room. The wall was beaded with moisture, and the place smelled like moldy old socks. I could feel the heat from a steam radiator rising to my head. I heard girlish laughter from the area around the cigarette machine. Two other women had joined the olive-skinned girl, a muscular black teenager with a broken front tooth and a wild-eyed, hairy-legged white woman in her 30s who was laughing at something, the olive-skinned girl said as she tossed away the crumpled cellophane wrapper and gave the black girl a cigarette, lighting it for her with her silver lighter. Too many sensations crowding in at once made me lightheaded. I leaned heavily against the wall, my right leg grazed the radiator, and I felt the searing metal through my pants. As I pulled away, the heat left a small black smudge on my brown corduroy pants leg. My eyes misted and my chest tightened with pain. I ground my front teeth into my lower lip and blinked to clear my eyes. The girl stood next to me. Our eyes met. Hi, she said with an easy smile. I stared at her dumbly, feeling my skin flush and my head tremble. Her eyes moved back and forth rapidly as she looked up at me. My throat felt dry and choked, and the sun from the window assaulted my eyes, flooding from behind her silhouetted figures. figure. I heard the Coke machine click off as I brushed past her. The plastic window dropped as I removed the cup, and from the doorway I heard her laughing with her friends. As I turned the corner into the hall, their voices faded into footsteps and chatter of other people entering the room behind me. I was angry. I thought, she must be mocking me. Why else would she approach me? Why was she grinning like that? What happened to Kathy? Well, um, you see a lot of references to fire and flames. Um, she wound up, well, when we were dating, she got out of the hospital. and She came one day. I was sitting on the lawn feeling like abandoned. And she came walking toward me all pale like a ghost, and she had a big bandage around her neck. She'd cut her throat with a straight-edge razor because her doctor told her, you know, stop messing around with uh, cutting your wrists and stuff. If you're going to kill yourself, cut your throat. I mean, can you believe that, you know, a doctor actually said that? Of course. She had horrible doctors. And um, she she was like a ghost, and she recovered, and then we had a nice summer dating, but she was getting more and more moody and... I think she was jealous that I was going away to college, and she wasn't, and she didn't have much of a future. And she was also very sarcastic and could be mean, and, you know, we had an edgy relationship. But that, I liked that. I found that provocative. And I needed somebody to make fun of me because I was kind of ridiculous in those days. So I, I liked that teasing. But we started drifting apart, and then we had sex because I thought it's time to, you know, have that experience and she she said fine and then she revealed to me that she had had a lot of sexual experience with men and women and <clears throat> she even revealed that she had been having sex with her doctor which unfortunately was common in those days but it's uh, today it's considered terribly unethical and this guy was using her and I was shocked but you know at this point I was beyond getting to too shocked so we had sex in a hotel room it was very 
unpleasant experience. It was very, she was in a very bad mood, and it was kind of mechanical and unro- very unromantic. In the book you mentioned, uh, the one of the things I was asking in terms of what happened to her is that you say that she saved your life, but she couldn't save her own. Yeah. She descended into hell, basically, after I went to college. I didn't see her much. We had an occasional contact, but she kind of drifted into the hippie subculture and got into drugs and apparently into prostitution and all kinds of terrible things. And she had a job for a while. She was very smart, and she got a job as a paralegal at a law firm, and then they found out that she had had this history of mental illness, and they fired her, which was devastating. Some of this I found out later after she died. I pieced it together with my reporting skills. So the last part of the book, I kind of talk about how I reported on her death to find out what happened, because the way I found out she died, I was working on the State Journal in Madison. I was proofreading the paper in the morning, and I found this little story that this woman had died in Milwaukee in a fire, and it was her, and I was so shocked, and I called my mother, and I said, Kathy's dead, and she said, oh, you didn't know that, and my mother was kind of oblivious, and so I, I, I asked around, and I found out I went to her funeral, talked to her parents, talked to her friends, did some investigating, and she had set fire to herself in a hotel room, because she really wanted to die, and she had tried and tried and tried, and uh, she wanted to make sure she died, so she got a can of gasoline and poured it all over herself and lay down in the bed with a rosary in her hand, which is very poignant, and, the, you know, burned to death. And they put the fire out, fortunately, before it destroyed the whole building. But her father said he had to go identify her body, and he said she was burned to a crisp. You know, I remember that. So it was a horrible tragedy, um, but she saved my life, but she couldn't save her. So that's the terrible poignancy of this thing and I wanted to pay tribute to her and bring her back to life in a sense um, I had a friend named John Sanford who died at the age of 99 and he wrote about his wife a lot and he told me he did that to bring her back to life and that's why I did this it also brings, it highlights too uh, many of this, the dysfunctions of the at that time in hospitals and in, as you said in the Catholic church with you in school and all the ways in which the, bro- the broken places are so mm-hmm. in the last um couple minutes i'm curious to know the impact this memoir had on your family you because you're very i mean you don't hold back anything in regard mm-hmm. to your parents you're very clear mm-hmm. about their role in your life their dysfunction and then at the same time you've also said they were, they were wonderful but they also mm-hmm. were not available what did yeah. what happened with you? You have seven, seven of you, six other people in your Yeah, five, five boys plus me plus my sister. We were all very successful, and we owe a lot of that to our parents. Nobody wound up, you know, in jail or in permanently incarcerated in one form or another. We wound up successful lawyers, doctors, teachers, etc. Um, my parents were terrific people in a lot of ways. They were both newspaper reporters, very good writers, and I learned to be a writer, especially from my mother. She was more supportive than my father, but they were fascinating, and they were into po- politics, And, and uh, but they just were alcoholics, and they just would go out of control every night and start screaming and fighting, and it was very, very uh, painful. And it got worse and worse even after I left. It was harder on the younger kids. Um, so I paint a, a complex picture of it, but I really don't hold back anything about myself or about them and or about anybody else. And, uh, I, you know, when you write a book like that, you wonder what your family's going to think. And um, I didn't say a lot about my siblings in the book, but um, 
they have had a very good reaction. I found uh, one of my brothers went to the hospital with me back in around 1980, and we took a lot of photographs. He took the photographs, and I used them to illustrate the book, which was really supportive of him. And he loved the book, and, and a couple of my other brothers wrote some very touching things. that They felt it's great our family story is being told because silence helps hurt people. I mean, it hurts you not to be able to tell your story or to carry around this weight with you. If you can let it out, being a writer, you're lucky you can let it out. And if you're an ordinary person who doesn't have an outlet, you can you can still talk to your friends about it, talk to your you know, loved ones. It's very important to talk about it. So I've been encouraging people. So my siblings have been encouraging to me about that. And one of my brothers is going to write his own book now. You've been listening to a memoir by Joseph McBride, The Broken Places. Uh, thank you for listening and joining us in this conversation just by listening. And I will see you next time. It's Javelin from Javelin's Bistro. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Javelin. It's been wonderful talking to you. Absolutely. Democracy Now! fans, Sunday, April 17th is Democracy Now!'s 20th anniversary. And what better way to celebrate than with a tribute to host Amy Goodman for her outstanding work. KPFA's Brian Edwards Teekert, host of Upfront, will take the stage at 7.30 p.m. to introduce Amy Goodman as she presents her new book, Democracy Now!, 20 years covering the movement's changing America at the First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. This space is wheelchair accessible. To buy tickets to see Amy Goodman on stage with Brian Edwards Teeker, Sunday, April 17th in Berkeley, go to brownpapertickets.com or supportive bookstores. That's Sunday, April 17th at 7.30. Time to celebrate Amy Goodman, a real legend in broadcast journalism. Join us. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88 